The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. chapter 8, verse 27, a very key passage in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. This text that we come to this evening in our study of Mark's gospel is the turning point of the gospel. It's like the hinge of the gospel. Up until this point, chapters 1 through 8, Mark has been making it clear to us by different episodes from the life of Christ, different teachings from the life of Christ, different miracles and things that occur, showing us again and again the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah. This is the one who, who forgives sins. Who is he that forgives sins? Who can forgive sins? This is the one who calms, who speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Who is this, the disciples asked, that the winds and the waves obey him? This is the one that even Herod and others are asking, who is this? And trying to figure this out. Is this John returned from the dead? 
And so we come to this critical text, which takes place in Caesarea Philippi. And if you think of the map of ancient Israel and you think of the Sea of Galilee and Bethsaida as this town at the top, at the north of that sea, we're going 25 miles further north to Caesarea Philippi. It's interesting that this was a region, in a sense, dedicated to the affirmation that Caesar is Lord. There was a real history of this area. It's the district of Iturea, or Iturea, and it was the residence at this time of Herod Philip, one of the tetrarchs, one of the main governors under Rome. But in the year 3 BC, Herod the Great had built a great pagan temple in this area in honor of Caesar Augustus. And so it's an irony that it's in this area, in a sense devoted to Caesar as Lord, that Peter would make his famous confession of Jesus the Christ. What can we learn about this amazing confession and Jesus' teaching and then his call to discipleship? What can we learn about our Messiah and the cost of following him? I would like us to see three points, and the first is this. We find a decisive confession of Jesus as Messiah. All of the first half of the Gospel of Mark has been leading up to this point, and now we finally come to it. Jesus is on the way with his disciples, and he asks them two questions. The first being, who do people say that I am? And they reply, with these various things that they've heard and that they've probably thought about as well. And all the thing that all of these possibilities have in common is that they fall far short of the Messiah. John the Baptist, Elijah, they were forerunners preparing for the Messiah. One of the prophets, likewise, a spokesman of God, but not the Messiah. They are all lesser views of Jesus. It's hard to know, really. You wonder and you think, what did the twelve think up to this point about Jesus' identity? We hear them saying things like, who is this who does these things? But it wouldn't have been surprising if they had been wondering, like the talk that they hear on the street, well, is this Elijah? Who is this? Is this a great prophet? Who is this? They have certainly committed their lives to Jesus at this point, but they are cloudy still about who he is exactly. And we could make the application to ourselves that still today we would say there's nothing new under the sun. Many people, people that we rub shoulders with, have only a very vague idea about the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. The idea that Jesus, as the confession says, is very God of very God. The idea that he is the only Lord and Savior. The idea that uh, he is the only way to eternal life and peace with God that is so foreign to many people in our everyday lives. Lesser 
views of Jesus Christ are natural to the world apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the true identity of Jesus. And so it's not surprising that the answer to the first question is one of these, maybe. That's what they're saying. And so Jesus changes the question in verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And we just imagine Peter immediately blurting out his response. Without hesitation, you are the Christ. Stop and think about this. In the other Gospels, we read a fuller account of this that Jesus says that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to him. It's from the Holy Spirit. But Peter, who was an Orthodox Jew of the day, would not have ever given that answer by his natural training or his natural upbringing. And it's really a remarkable confession in the sense when you think about it that this confession comes when Jesus is coming in lowliness and humility. Yes, in a sense, there are glimpses of his glory, that the miracles, that what he does and says reveals who he is. But this is at a time when the religious leaders of the day are all rejecting him and arguing with him and questioning whether he's from Beelzebub or the devil. And so here is Peter with this bold and unhesitating confession of Christ. It's a remarkable thing. It is truly of the Lord. It is by the Spirit. But we could say it's also by the very evidence that Mark has been giving us, that Mark is recording for us in his gospel. It's almost as if the disciples, the twelve, have been witnessing what we've been reading, and now they're at the point that Jesus is ready for them to make their declaration, their confession of him as Christ. Peter speaking on behalf of the other twelve, I'm sure. In in a sense, it's like saying, look at the evidence. And I wonder, for all of us, have you ever stopped to truly look at the evidence? Do you have any doubts about who Jesus Christ is? Maybe you've been raised in the church. Maybe you've heard these Bible stories for years. Maybe a friend has told you these things. Maybe, uh, maybe you have doubts. Look at the Gospels and pray for the Lord to help you by his Spirit. Pray for eyes to see the glory of Christ to be revealed. Look at the evidence. None of us come to faith in Christ without the Lord opening our minds and hearts to see the divine glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you have heard the name Frank Morrison, who was a lawyer who was British, who in the last century set out to disprove Christianity. But as he read and studied the scriptures to disprove Christianity, lo and behold, may not surprise you, his mind was totally changed. He had a whole radical conversion to Christ, and he, he received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And instead of writing what he thought was going to be the definitive refutation of Christianity, he ended up writing the classic book, Who Moved the Stone, a book about the resurrection, 
the evidence for the resurrection of Christ biblically. What an example. If you have doubts about the person of Christ, if you have doubts about the identity of Christ, read through the Gospels. Keep reading through them, asking the Lord to open your eyes. Peter's confession of Christ is a good example to us because Jesus is going to eventually in our text talk about being ashamed of him. And Peter's later example, we all know well, of denying Christ three times reminds us that it will always take courage and grace from God to continue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will never find our Lord's message to be popular. No matter how much Christianized we think our society may be. Some of you children may be in schools that you're starting to experience that for the first time, or maybe you have been experiencing that for a couple of years now. And you wonder when people mock the Lord or people take the Lord's name in vain, how you should respond. And there's no easy answer to all of that, but I would just say that this scripture text shows us that you will likely find the pressure to give in to the world to get harder, to get more intense, to want to conform and to, in a sense, be ashamed of your Savior and Lord to save face in the world. And Jesus warns us about that. Ask God to give you grace to stand under the pressure and to seek to faithfully continue to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, secondly, from our text, we see a plain statement of the Messiah's purpose. Here we see this in verses 31 to 33. A plain statement of the Messiah's purpose. Actually, verse 30 leads us into this because after this confession in Mark's account, Peter says, you are the Christ, and it might surprise you, verse 30 says, and he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Why shouldn't they tell anyone about him? Well, the answer may be that Jesus knew that the time was not quite right. But I believe, and some commentaries take this view, that it's very likely that he didn't want them to say a lot about this because they did not yet understand the purpose of his messiahship. Peter said, you are the Christ. In other words, literally, you are the Messiah. But Peter, as we'll see from our text, had a woefully wrong understanding of what the Messiah had come to do. And Jesus warns them not to tell anyone yet. And then he launches out in verse 34 with this very important change in the Gospel of Mark. This theme of the Messiah needing to suffer, he must suffer, That's going to come out in Mark's gospel again and again now. In fact, the second half of the book is about the purpose of Jesus' messiahship as he goes to the cross. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
Remember that up till now, Jesus has often been speaking in parables. And he gives a parable, and then later on, he tells the disciples, well, it's for you to understand this, so I'll, I'll explain this to you. He's speaking in ways that are veiled. And now, he is saying something very plainly, and he's going to continue to declare it as he goes to the cross. And Jesus' answer to what the purpose of the Messiah's coming is, is that the Son of Man must suffer. That phrase, Son of Man, is from Daniel 7, this divine messianic figure that Daniel speaks of, that is revealed to Daniel. Jesus likes that title, and he uses it. The Son of Man must suffer. And notice he uses the word must. He doesn't just use the word will suffer, as if he's prophesying or predicting what's going to occur. No, the word must connotes necessity, purpose. It's not just a prediction, but it's a declaration of what the Messiah's purpose is. It's amazing, isn't it? Never before in Israel had anyone connected suffering with the Messiah. And we look back on that and think, well, Isn't it pretty obvious? What did they do with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and other texts in Isaiah? But no, up till that point, yes, they knew it talked of a suffering servant, but they never connected the suffering servant with the Messiah. That just didn't make sense. But Jesus is saying, my messianic mission involves rejection, humiliation, shame, being killed, and rising again. Something that's obvious to us, but we know from Peter's reaction, this was not obvious to the disciples at all. And here we see Jesus stating the central truth of the Bible. Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to save sinners. That's, in a nutshell, the purpose of of the Messiah. Do you understand that truth? The rest of the Gospel of Mark is fleshing out that purpose and showing Jesus live it out in obedience, in full obedience to the Father's will as he sets his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is also to confess and to believe that Jesus died, Jesus suffered for sinners, and that that great purposes of the triune God before the foundation of the world, the purpose was for Jesus to do this very thing. It was ordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus' salvation had sacrifice at its heart. And so it's not surprising what Peter does here, is it? Verse 32, and Peter took him aside. You can just see Peter put his arm around the Lord. Can I talk to you? Uh, And he began to rebuke him. This kind of makes you stop and think, doesn't it? What arrogance, what foolishness to rebuke the Lord of glory. He began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Think about this. We were really, I'm not surprised at Peter's reaction, are you? This was not Peter's idea of the Messiah. He was a good Jewish boy. He had been raised as a good Jewish boy. He had been taught all about the Messiah, was going to set the nation free from the shackles of Rome and bring in God's kingdom on earth. And so he rebuked the Lord, and you can just say, hear him saying, That's, that shouldn't be what the way things go here. Probably, I can't help but think that part of Peter's reaction was, Lord, I don't like this idea of suffering for you because, I'm speaking Peter here, Lord, I'm guessing that that would imply suffering for me too. And that's not the agenda that I had for my life and that I had in mind. I know we've just been through an election year that we all had enough of, but imagine, imagine the disciples looking at Jesus' ministry as kind of like a presidential election campaign. You know, and you're out there campaigning, and they begin to think, this might be the Messiah. Well, what's that going to involve? Well, what happens when the president gets elected? All these people who've been campaigning with him, what happens to them? They get to be on the cabinet, right? They get good places of honor and authority, right? And now it's like a presidential election that the candidate says, I'm going to win this election and then be killed. What? What? I thought I was going to be Secretary of Defense. You know, I thought I was going to be Secretary of State. How's this going to happen? I thought the Messiah was going to sit on David's throne and gloriously rule. That's what I thought. You can just hear Peter not saying all this, but saying, Lord, I think you've got the wrong idea of what the Messiah is going to do. Jesus, of course, was absolutely right. His campaign, so to speak, was not leading to a coronation, at least the kind that would be obviously seen, but it was leading to the cross and then to the resurrection and then to the ascension at the Father's right hand. And one day that will be made obvious to all. But back to verse 33, Jesus immediately sees Peter's rebuke for what it really was, worldly thinking. And notice how he addresses him. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He even addresses Peter as Satan. No doubt, Peter's rebuke reminded Jesus of the wilderness temptation and Satan himself tempting him those three times with alternate routes to the Messiahship. And every time Jesus said no, and he spoke the word of God. So it doesn't surprise me that Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so Jesus responds to Peter with full commitment to the Father's plan, obedience in the pathway of suffering. And this this ringing statement of the Messiah's purpose reminds us that there is no other Christ to believe in and to trust in and to love and follow than the crucified Christ, the crucified and risen Christ. There is no other Christ. There is not a Christ to believe in who's simply a very good man or a prophet or a 
runner or a miracle worker. The only true Christ of the Bible is the Christ who suffers and dies and is raised for our sins. That's the only Christ to put your faith in. Doesn't that lead us to simply fall down on our faces and worship our God? This is our Christ. Our Lord and Savior willingly took the path of suffering for you and for me. Think of those disciples there that day. And think of how this truth that Jesus would affirm again and again and say again and again and then would see it unfold in their history in a few short months, Jesus dying on the cross. Think of that. Think of Peter in 1 Peter 2, years after the fact, talking about the stone which the builders rejected has become the capstone. Think of that. And this capstone, there are two options. Either either it falls on you and crushes you, or you fall on that stone And it, in a sense, crushes you still, but in a different way. And that's where we come to the cost of discipleship. Stop and just reflect for a moment on this point. Where does the power for holy living come from? In the cost of discipleship, where does the power come from? We're going to be reading, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. A lot of that power, I would say, fundamentally comes from a life of worship, a life looking to Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is the one who transforms our lives. As we read this text, are we moved to worship? I was reading through parts of the Lord of the Ring, you know, the three, three books of the Lord of the Rings. Some of you get tired of hearing about that particular uh, series of books. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote them years ago now, but I've always enjoyed them, and I have a habit of every few years reading some of the highlights. And I was reading the other day through one of them, and it's uh, at a place where some of the main characters are walking through this great realm of Rowan, which is like this horse area, ruled by this kingdom of horse riders who look like Vikings with long blonde hair and helms and so forth. And one of the three walking through this realm looking for two hobbits that are lost is Aragorn, who is the true king of Middle-earth. But he looks like a bum. He's all full of mud, and they've been hiking and walking, and he and his two associates, one's an elf, one's a dwarf, are are there on the, the, the grasslands of Rohan when The riders of Rowan come, and hundreds of these well-attired horsemen who see them and surround them with their great horses and their spears, and they point their spears at them, and the leader of them, Eomer, comes and speaks to these three. They're about to kill them because no one is allowed in this realm unless they have passage through the realm, and Eomer begins to speak to them, and the conversation does not go very well, and at one point, Aragorn stands to his full height and casts aside his cloak and says, I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, descendant of a high king, Elendil. And here is the sword that was broken, and it is reforged, and he pulls out this great sword. And Eomer, this rider, just kind of falls back. And you get this sense that from this dusty traveler, there is this glimpse of a great king 
and they end up becoming allies and great friends and so forth as the story goes. But I was reading that, and I hadn't read that part of the book for a long time, and I just stopped, and I thought Tolkien was a master at really Christian imagery because it's, it's, it's a metaphor that relies on the kingship of Jesus Christ. Here he is at Caesarea Philippi with all of the uh, trappings of worldly grandeur going to Caesars and to pagan gods, the pagan god Pan. There is a, a monument to this god. And here is the true king and creator of the world. And these disciples have a glimpse of that, and they worship says something to us about how we should live our lives with an attitude of worship, that in the midst of the dustiness of our everyday lives, to be able to step back and see the glory of Jesus Christ as Scripture reveals him and to worship him. And in so doing, every time we do that in our daily devotional time or as we worship like this or as we meditate and maybe sing a praise song to the Lord or a hymn in the car, we are being more and more conformed to the image of our Savior and Lord. And we're more and more empowered to live lives of self-denial and cross-bearing for the glory of God. Well, this brings me to my last point. The resulting cost of discipleship for every believer. We've seen the confession. We've seen this great teaching about the purpose of the Messiah And now there's application for us all in verses 34 to 38 about the cost of discipleship. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Interestingly, variations of this teaching are found in the Gospels six times. This must be very, very important because if it's repeated six times, it must be something that we need to take stock of. And the theology of all of this is essentially that salvation is a free gift acquired at the great cost of Jesus, the Messiah. It's a free gift to receive through faith, but also, in another sense, it costs you everything. Discipleship costs you everything. You must lose your life to save it. The cost of discipleship is that you give the Savior your life. It's not as a way to earn salvation or merit salvation as if that makes you good enough to merit salvation from the Lord. No, but trusting in Jesus Christ goes hand in hand with giving Jesus Christ your life, calling him Lord, giving him lordship of your life. And so you give him your life by this very means, by denying yourself for his sake, by taking up his cross and following him. And Jesus goes on to explain in verses 35 and 36 this seemingly paradox. What does it profit if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? 
What can you give in return for your soul? Obviously, nothing. And it's a total waste if you gain the whole world and lose your soul. We're speaking of heaven and hell here. And then one application of this Jesus draws in verses 37 and 38 is the calling not to be ashamed of him as we live our lives, being willing to stand for Christ. Whoever is ashamed of me and my world, uh, in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. That doesn't mean that we perfectly do that. Look at Peter's example. He failed miserably, but he was still born of the Spirit, and he was sustained by Christ. But think for a minute about what this call to discipleship entails. First of all, we see from our text, I have four brief subpoints here, and I'll be very brief about them. One is that every believer bears a cross. Notice that verse 34, the focus changes. Jesus calls the crowds that are apparently around them in some way. He calls the crowds and he says it to all of them, if anyone would come after me. It's not just for the super spiritual. Bearing a cross, self-denial, is not for the elite spiritual ones, like maybe pastors or officers in the church or something like that. No, this is for every believer, whether you live in Somalia or Switzerland or Scranton, Pennsylvania, the way of the cross is there for every believer. And for new believers, it stands at the entrance of the Christian life. That's what it means to repent and turn to Christ in faith. But for believers who have already done that and are saved, the cross lies every day before us. It's at the entrance to the Christian life, but it's our daily cross to bear as well. For the believer, the cross is ever-present, and the only way to escape the cross is to go to be with the Lord in glory. But we also see that a cross is something painful. It involves death. That's the very nature of the cross. It's an instrument of death. The person who bears it, uh, experiences pain. And we tend to think of outward pain, physical suffering in some way, but primarily the suffering of the cross is inward pain. And that was true even for Jesus on the literal cross. His primary suffering was spiritual and inward. Of course, his physical suffering was very great as well. Bearing a cross may involve the pain of persecution, and that's certainly a difficult thing to bear, but it's related to many other kinds of experiences in life as well. Let me give you an illustration or two. Think of faithfulness in marriage. Our culture tells us that we're to pursue whatever we think is best for us. Fulfill yourself is what all the newspaper and magazine articles talk about. So if marriage is going well, fine. But if it's not going well and you find that you can have greater fulfillment elsewhere, then pursue that. Put yourself first. Maybe you need to be set free from your marriage to your own personal fulfillment. But obviously, taking up the cross goes against the grain of those worldly ideas. Taking up the cross says, no, maybe it means with inner pain, sacrificing your self-centered desires, and instead continue with God's help in marital faithfulness. Or to use marriage in another way as an 
example, what if you're single and you deeply desire to be married, but providentially the Lord hasn't enabled that? And maybe part of your resolve is to be obedient to God's word and to marry a Christian only, and so nothing's come about from that. That can involve a lot of inner pain too, because this is for the Lord's sake. And there are things that you would long for but are not given in the providence of God, but also it's part of cross-bearing for the glory of God and faithfulness to God's word. So a cross is for every Christian. It is something that involves pain. And it's also, number three, voluntary. Bearing a cross is a voluntary action. Jesus voluntarily took up his cross. A cross is a painful experience in a sense which the Christian consciously bears with a view to God. And that's why even things that we can't control, like illness and suffering and something that goes wrong with our family or a financial disaster that takes place or a tornado takes away our house and our loved ones, all these things that we don't have any control over, there is a voluntary nature in the sense that We bear it unto the Lord. Calvin has good things to say about this, that he disagrees with those who say a cross is only involving voluntary suffering or persecution. He says, no, the voluntary nature of the cross even involves things that we don't control. Because in those areas, we can choose to respond in a manner pleasing to God, in trust in him, in love for him, in hope, in his word. Maybe it's the agony of having a wayward child or the death of a loved one or the experience of being abandoned by your spouse or some terrible victimization that you've experienced or being sinned against in the workplace and unfairly losing your job or being forced out in some way. All of these things out of our control, not voluntary in that sense, but our response transforms the way we look at our lives because we are living before our Savior. And then finally, the cross is something that puts to death. We have rosy feelings of the cross because of how it's come down to us. But of course, it was an instrument of death, slow, agonizing death. And for us, the cross puts to death sinful self. It puts to death the flesh. It's, it enables us to more and more die to sinful self and more and more live for our Savior and Lord. It's like there should be a big construction sign over our lives. Construction site, God at work for the glory of God. And that's how God uses bearing crosses in our lives. For every believer, painful, voluntary, putting sinful self to death. Someone has put it this way with a succinct definition. Bearing a cross is every Christian's daily conscious selection of those options which will please Christ, pain self, and aim at putting sinful self to death. And that's the cost of discipleship for each of us. Remember, it is the way of life. It is the way of great gain. 
Some of you may have read that Serena Williams won her 23rd major tennis victory. What a tennis player. And maybe you read the story that Michael Jordan, whose number was 23, sent her a congratulatory note, specially made shoes. I'm not sure why. Maybe athletic shoes. You think of uh, Michael Jordan and basketball shoes. But, you know, 23, 23rd victory. Wow, she's going to carry this note from Michael Jordan and specially made shoes the rest of her life. And then those things are going to get old, right? What crown in this world in any way compares to the glorious gain of life in Jesus Christ? The cost of discipleship is nothing. It pales into insignificance compared to the joy beyond the cross for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing this last hymn in the final verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, if I owned everything, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul my life, my all. There's the cost. It demands it all, but the gift, how great is the gift? Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Jesus going the way of the cross willingly that we might live, that we might live eternally with you, that we might live in this sin-cursed world with all the brokenness around us and in us, and yet have this certainty of eternal life the blessing of knowing you forever, the joy of our Savior being with us no matter what happens in our lives. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that the cost, the yoke is easy and the burden is light in Jesus Christ. May we take that cross this week and willingly walk with you following Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.